Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. Here on the Wolf Connection Podcast with Stephen and myself, joining us from Haley, Idaho. He is the field advisor for Lava Lake Lamb and the Wood River Wolf Project, Kurt Holtzen. Kurt, pleasure to have you with us. How are you doing in Idaho today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for reaching out. I know you emailed us and you got in contact with Ree, who's our development uh, coordinator, which is great that you reached out. I feel like we've been having this wave of people who have been reaching out as opposed to us having to do the contacting. So this is great. Can you give everybody just a little bit of a background on what the field advisor for Lava Lake Lamb and Wood, R- Wood River Wolf Project is and what your, how that role is? Yeah, so um, as a field advisor, um, I'm not on staff. Um, I'm a volunteer. I, I don't make any money um, off of either program. Uh, that allows me some latitude, um, and I kind of like it that way. Um, so what I do is assist with the coexistence program with Lava Lake, um, coming up with all the SOP and, and, and some of the tool modifications that we've used over the year uh, years. And then uh, with uh, the Wood River Wolf Project, kind of the same capacity. Um, I provide some continuity. I've been with the project since 2014. So as new personnel come and go, I kind of do some of the training and, and advising uh, for field operations. So what's that training involved with and what are you teaching these new individuals when they come on for both organizations? Yeah, oftentimes it's uh, just uh, non-lethal tools use, conflict mitigation tools use, um, how we're using the tools. Um, a lot of it is sometimes camera work, uh, where to place cameras where, where we've historically seen wolves, um, just the general lay of the land, um, that kind of thing. Um, nothing too special. Since 2014, how have your, or have they, your methods changed for this non-lethal deterrence or, or what's really changed in the organization or in the conversation as it relates to the organization since 2014? It seems like a, a lifetime ago now. Yeah, that's, that's a ways back. Uh, feels like a lifetime. Uh, so prior to 2014, 15, uh, the program, the project wolf project was, was, was really run by the defenders of wildlife. It was reasonably well-funded and had a lot of personnel. Um, so they were able to do a lot of things in the field that um, were beneficial um, just by having people that could go out, wolf guardians, and go out and stay with the sheep bands and provide human presence that way. Uh, in 2015, the project really changed hands. At Lava Lake uh, Institute for Science and Conservation became the fiscal sponsor and and manager of the wolf project and funding uh, became a bigger issue. So what we had to do is figure out how to accomplish the same kind of things with a skeleton crew, basically uh, minimal personnel. Uh, So we had to really had to rethink um, the whole, the whole uh, idea behind how do we get non-lethal and conflict mitigation tools in the field with uh, these sheep bands. What does equipment like this cost? Uh, you know, they're not super expensive. They they do have some cost. Uh, right now, uh, with Lava Lake Lamb, our biggest uh, tool has been the dogs, mm. of course. Uh, that's the first layer. We use a multiple layer uh, approach. 
Uh, guardian dogs are the first layer. Um, then we will up that with some kind of a protective collar. And the collar we're filling this year has a blinking LED, which uh, simulates uh, human presence. Uh-huh. And then the next uh, layer is uh, Fox lights uh, that we use. Uh, and they are an electronic uh, device uh, developed in Australia by uh, Ian Whalen who uh, came up with them uh, to help with depredation uh, with fox and sheep. But um, we've used them pretty successfully here um, with wolves. Uh, They're a dust dawn operated uh, piece of uh, equipment. They come on at dark and then have a randomized uh, pattern of lights uh, that they will go all night until uh, sunrise and then they they go back off. Curious, what kind of dogs are these I mean, using like small cattle dogs or bigger breeds like Pyrenees or something. Yeah, these are these are big guardian dogs. These are Pyrenees, Akbosh, uh, and that type of dog. Um, Hundred plus pounds usually. Um, we typically like to see at least four dogs with a band, and that's what Lava Lake runs. Right now, we have uh, Akbosh, Kangle Cross, and Pyrenees uh, working in the field, and. They really are the backbone of uh, coexistence uh, and non-lethal work. They they are the backbone and and do all all the hard work and Very cool. are with the band twenty four seven the whole season. Yeah, those dogs need to get a lot of credit. How big is the range that you have for Lava Lake Lamb in Idaho? It has to be substantial, I would imagine. Yeah, I I don't really know the exact numbers. It it's substantial. Um, something uh, larger than uh, twenty four thousand acres, I think. Um, it's it's big, um, and they've retired quite a number of allotments that they they had uh, prior to last year. So, who who invents these technologies? Do you know Do you know names, or are they just they old enough to the point where it, it's kind of got lost? Yeah, a lot of the stuff's been in use for a long time. Wildlife services back in the seventies started um, with some of this stuff, um, actually, and then um, people like Ian in Australia with the fox lights really kind of pushed the envelope and then turbo flattery um, and, and those things, you know, been around for a long time. It's, and most of what we're doing isn't really any new things, but what we do are taking existing technologies and configuring them to be user-friendly and minimal amount of uh, labor involved for the herder. So we're trying to make it easier and easier for this stuff to get in the field and be used. And you guys train the the Pyrenees or are they, is this kind of just a natural instinctual job for them? Yeah, it's kind of a instinctual thing. They, they're raised with sheep and they bond with the sheep band. And so they prefer sheep company over humans uh, most of the time. Although Lava Lake dogs are, are socialized to the point where they're, we can handle them and um, they're friendly to humans. Uh, it's a little bit of a odd situation here in the Wood River uh, Valley because of all the recreational uh, use. And most of those people have dogs. So if you have a dog that is too hot, um, just it's just not going to work, um, a too aggressive dog. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a strange balance trying to have a dog that responds to predator threats, but is then soft enough to uh, co- uh, interact with uh, people out recreating with their dogs. So. And yeah, there's some, there's some different level of intelligence there. I'd imagine that runs through those Pyrenees that you guys have in order <laughs> to strike that balance. Cause I'm sure you get some dogs wandering on the property, you know, wandering in these fields at some point. So I'm sure you've had your uh, share of run-ins, not only with predators, but also with domestic canines as well. 
Yeah, it can't happen. Uh, Lava Lakes dogs, which I've had the most experience with, are really, really um, good at, at, at transitioning from uh, uh, being guard dog for the band and then also interacting with people. They, they are super great dogs. They usually stay with the band and uh, don't wander a whole lot. So that's really helpful. And they're just, I can't say enough good things about the dogs that they're using. <laughs> so tell me about the reason you reached out for us because I know you, you, in your email that I saw, it, it really started, I believe, after a lot of the Idaho legislature passed with SB, it seemed like around tw- uh, SB 1211. And that seemed to be the reason for your reach out to, to come on and talk with Stephen and myself. So what was the, we talk about the radical middle a lot, Stephen and myself, and you echoed that, which I thought was fascinating. So what, what was the call for you to reach out to have this conversation with us? Yeah, I was, uh, this is really outside my lane. I'm, I'm a field guy. I'm boots on the ground. I don't do this kind of thing often. And um, so I felt compelled to maybe push the, the story forward that coexistence works. Um, here recently, we've heard a lot of things about how um, large carnivores and wolves specifically are not able to uh, coexist with ranching. And it just isn't, it isn't true. Um, so with, uh, SB 1211 is so unbalanced. I just felt like that I needed to push a voice out there that was saying, Hey, you know, coexistence, uh, works, uh, conflict mitigation tools work. Um, we've been doing it for a while and we're pretty good at it. And, um, you know, there's just, it's just this unbalanced approach is not needed. Yeah, I, I, I looked at some of the data because I had Suzanne Asha Stone on and, and the numbers are staggering in the positive in that I think over the course, I, I believe of 15 years or however long Wood River Wolf Project has been going on, they've lost maybe a dozen sheep over the course of that time. And it's all due to the coexistence measures that they have used, like you were talking about with the fox lights and the flagery mm-hmm. and things of that sort. What what can you speak to the the implementation of the tools and why they work so well? Is it because of the training that goes on from people such as yourself to others in the organization so that it's just, it, it's almost as though it's information that's passed down through generations, so to speak? Yeah, so I, it has very little to do with the training, I think. Um, the fact that it works so well is that wolves are so afraid of humans that they really don't want anything to do with us. Um, their preferred uh, stance is to be somewhere away from human presence. And so if you put human presence in the field, um, simulated, um, fox lights simulate human presence. It's something they don't see in the natural world. It's, it's, a, human, it's a human thing. They really don't want to have anything to do with it. It's very easy. I I have found it to be if you use the tools, put them in the field. Uh, it just amazes me that it works as well as it does. I I really thought in the beginning that it would not work this well. In your in your experience, is there a response to those who say, for example, uh, these methods are temporary? That wolves learn really quick, um, and what's your what is your take on? the idea that wolves essentially self-regulate 
and the concept of lethal management after a successful reintroduction? Yeah, that's uh, that's a complicated one. That's kind of a, a bunch rolled into one. Um, so as far as habituating to the non-lethal, we really haven't had an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we seem to have wolves that will come in every like seven to 10 days, have a look at what's going on and then leave and be gone. Mm. And typically our season, you know, 60, 90 days will get us through the biggest part of the season. So uh, we really haven't seen, once the tools go on, go on the field, we haven't seen them pushed or uh, wolves going past or, or depredating after that, after that fact. Wow. So. And then non-lethal, non-lethal is always going to have a place uh, when you're talking about uh, the management um, side of things, especially when you're dealing with agriculture. It's uh, it's an important key. It's like two sides of the of the same coin, and they and non-lethal and lethal control should hold the same weight when you're making management decisions, and and you should make it uh, the decision just based on the facts in the field. And try not to involve all the human baggage that we like to attach to this to this uh, this issue. Right, I love it. Um, in this, in the spirit of radical middle, I feel like I should play devil's advocate sometimes. But um, have you come across any scenarios in which coexistence and non-lethal management are not and non-lethal methods do not work, um, or where coexistence won't work? Yeah, I have not. Um, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, we, um, have interacted with a wolf. It's a collared wolf. This, this wolf, uh, as a yearling was involved in a depredation. Uh, he got a collar put on. Um, we coexisted with that wolf an entire season, which was last season. Uh, kind of lost track of him over the winter time. Uh, he came in and depredated on, uh, had a depredation on, on Lava Lake, uh, sheep. Um, around Easter time, we put out uh, non-lethal and we have been coexisting with that wolf um, off and on for the entire season. Wow. So, I mean, that wolf's depred- and two known depredations that I know of. And we, we deployed the coexistence uh, or the conflict mitigation tools and, and he respected them. So. Uh, the problem and the reason why we had the depredation is we weren't doing our part. We we were not ready. We did not expect to have wolf presence where where he showed up, and that was a hundred percent our fault. That's such a great way to put it, Kurt. Do you do you see that the way that you your organization Lava Lake Lamb handles just that particular depredation different than how a lot of the other legislation? goes about the larger picture because I feel as though you could have the same instance where there's a depredation or two and it's immediate to go to that lethal measure. Whereas Lava Lake Lamb took the step back almost from what you're saying, took ownership of the fact that you guys weren't on top of your, you know, your, your, uh, your sheep implemented those, non-lethals and then you've had a, a perfect co- or a, a better coexistence since then. Do you see that there's a lot of rush to judgment and a lot of rush to just eliminate the problem as opposed to trying to fix it? 
on humans end in some of these larger cases? Yeah, definitely. And and that goes back to the human baggage uh, thing that we attach to this issue. If you look at it from a wildlife uh, management issue, sometimes the lethal control will make things worse because you go in and, and you take out a member of a pack um, that's maybe a major player in the pack and, and you weaken that pack so they're, they're more likely to depredate. Um, our approach is uh, we take ownership of the fact that we weren't doing what we were supposed to do. We got caught with our pants down. Now let's go out there and use the non-lethal and, and see what happens. And, and to date, once the non-lethal goes in the field, the depredation stopped and we didn't have any more trouble. So, Wow. wow. So what's the information that... Lava, I, I know mostly how Wood River Wolf Project approaches the information that they're giving out to the general public in the coexistence methods that they use and how it affects the entire ecosystem with the predators and the fact that the sheep are able to coexist. What are the ways in which Lava Lake Lamb pushes out the information from their point of view about their coexistence measures, how it works? And are you trying to implement that, that information, those tactics with other sheep herders, cattle, livestock, individuals, or is it spe- specific just to Lava Lake Lamb? Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm trying to do today, I guess, is, uh, is push that forward. And, and I guess we've done that through the project. Um, when, when Lava Lake was the, the fiscal sponsor, um, did a lot of training and a lot of uh, travel uh, into some other states to help train herders. Um, so, uh, trying to step forward and do a little better job of that, I guess, is uh, why I'm here today. No, and everything that you're doing, and again, I thank you for reaching out to us so we can have this conversation. It, I, I love that the approach is to look inward or look into the human error that could be done or how humans can do better because a lot of the conversations that we seem to have or stumble upon into on our podcast is really the the wild side of it people not really understanding that it's nature's way of finding the easiest prey for them and if there's a way that we can coexist in that way to deter that to happen there are ways to do it and so it seems that a lot of what lava lake lamb is doing cuz I, I went through your website and it, there's plenty of information on there about how you're implementing these strategies. And, it, and it's fascinating to see that. So how did you get started first with Wood River Wolf Project? Because that, I believe, was first. And then you moved on to Lava Lake Lamb. And I didn't realize you were juggling both at the same time. So how did you get started initially just wanting to get into this and, and, uh, and working coexistence-wise with predators? Yeah, so uh, early on, you know, I've... I've always had an interest in wildlife. I was a hunter, um, did a lot of stuff in the backcountry. Um, when the wolf reintroduction came along, I was a little skeptical. I, I was secretly um, excited that I might get to see a, a wolf in the, in the Frank Church, but I didn't really realize that because it wasn't a very popular stance to have in Idaho at that time. Um, so I'm kind of a researcher and a show-me kind of guy, so I... I try to find the truth for myself. And so I started doing some research and watched uh, Living with Wolves with the Dutchers, uh, their documentary, which was uh, a big, a big tipping point for me. And 
then uh, ended up moving to Yellowstone. And about that time, I, I read Wolfer by Carter Niemeyer. And that really, I really um, identified with Carter and that book. And it, it really helped me to, to, to gain an interest in coexistence and, and that type of work and, and wolves in general. And then my time in Yellowstone really um, changed my perception of what wolves were, how they act, and all of the wives' tales and, and bad press that wolves got wasn't necessarily true. And so interacting um, with wild wolves in and around the Yellowstone ecosystem really, um, really changed uh, my dogma about uh, large carnivores. So it's, and, and about that time, I reached out to the Wood River Wolf Project and uh, they wanted me to help as a field technician that uh, first season in 2014. It was the last season for Defenders. Uh, so I drove from West Yellowstone, Mon Montana, over here to Haley, Idaho, and uh, helped the project uh, on the weekends and uh, when I could. Uh, I think I drove like 3,000 miles that first season, but uh, it was well worth it, and I learned a lot. Man, so it's amazing how that we, because we just interviewed Jim and Jamie Dutcher not too long ago, and then Carter was a while back. It's amazing how you found these things through the course of of your life and, and moving through Yellowstone, it's like you hit the, the three points to really change the perspective on your, on your own, which is, which is great to see. What was it about Carter's book and Carter in general that you identified with and why that, that struck you so much? Yeah, we're just uh, somewhat alike in the fact that uh, I've spent time in the Midwest uh, and my heritage comes from the Midwest. Uh, like his and um, his interest in in in, uh, in, the, in the wild things and kind of his uh, change of dogma also over the years after you know being out there and and seeing what it's really like. Um, I just really identified with uh, with the book Wolfer and and Carter in general. And Carter has been a huge help to me. Uh, 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 he's really been. Um, a big mentor and um every time i've reached out to him for guidance or advice he's he's been very willing and and very helpful um so i you know i really i probably would not be doing what i'm doing had i not read wolfer and and then uh got a hold of, of carter and started uh um, talking to him because ranchers and hunters are uh sort of the two groups that they they have more they feel like they have more to lose in in the process of of reintroduction i guess for hunters it's 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 access to game as a hunter who who is also pro wolf you know sort of what makes a, a hunter in a general sense tick or through what picture they see the world of the outdoors again in a general sense but is there something specific that you needed to hear to shift your your thoughts that was able to change your mind yeah, I'm not so sure. It's something that I heard. Uh, I'm very much, uh, I don't really take anybody at their word. I, I, if somebody tells me something, I'm probably going to go out and, and see it for myself. And so all the time I spent in the backcountry in Yellowstone, there are a lot of elk. There's a lot of big bulls. Um, and also in Idaho, in this area, we have a very good wolf presence and there are elk everywhere. So just basically through my own discovery, 
of, you know, being out in the field and, and seeing that, you know, 20 plus years of wolf presence um, and elk are really healthy. I mean, and there are a lot of them out there. They're not, they're not gone. So, um, you know, that was really how, how that came about. Do you think that if there was an obvious reduction of elk numbers that you would have thought differently, or is that not part of the, the, the overall outlook? Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's possible. Um, certainly having that proven, um, that, that part of the wolf myth, um, had that proven out, I, I might've taken a little different stance. I, I have never been against any large carnivore or predator. Um, always kind of respected them, um, even before, um, doing this kind of work. So, you know, I enjoy them as part of the, of the, of nature and their role that they play in the ecosystem. I think that's even more of a testament to the fact that you've, you've, you've seen proof that coexistence is possible. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think because we spoke with another hunter, Brett Ox, not too long ago, and he really said the same thing as you're saying is that it seems as though if people don't see it for themselves or aren't willing to take the hike into the backcountry to to know that there are healthy elk numbers or healthy deer numbers. And there is a massive amount of ungulates in these states, particularly with the Idaho's, the Montana's, the Wyoming's, where there seem to be a lot of the legislative problems where people are butting their heads with the wolf situation. It seems as though it almost needs to be, as for you, it needs to be seen with their own two eyes if they go and see that there are the bull elk, this see that there are these herds are healthy, they're strong, and they're just moving around because they have these predators in their backyard again. And for the last couple of decades, it's just it's made them stronger and better. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I mean, they evolved together. I mean, it just it makes sense that they they need each other to be the strongest that they can be. And just this season, um, the herder uh, was relaying a story to me that I found very interesting. Um, that in the past, the dogs will sometimes find elk with calves and maybe chase them or you know interact with them. And um, beginning this season, um, some of the elk cows have become pretty aggressive and are chasing the dogs, which is something he had never seen before. So elk are figuring it out. I mean, they... They, they, you know, will instinctually um, figure out how to deal with this large carnivore and have for eons. So uh, I thought that was a pretty interesting story that he relayed to me and he found it to be pretty amazing. So, And do you think cattle, domesticated cattle will, will figure it out as well? Yeah, that's a much harder thing because we've bred all the smart out of, uh, out of cattle and bred all the horns off of them. So um, I think over time, you know, with with the right selection process, um, we could get back to that where, you know, back when we had large carnivores on the landscape, those cattle were were made to go out and survive uh, on the range with minimal um, health I mean, they had horns and they had mothering ability and they were a pretty tough customer. And then once we eradicated the, the large carnivore presence, we started breeding cattle back to a gentler, easier to handle um, a cow so that it was, you know, maybe a little less dangerous for us to handle them in the 
in the corrals and that kind of thing. But um, there are some people that are going the other direction and, and it's encouraging. And I, I really think that, you know, you could, you could get a long ways uh, with, with the right breeding program and the right breeds of cattle. Yeah. This is something that's kind of, that kind of has blown my mind because it's something you don't think about unless you grew up in on a farm. I mean, I live on a farm now, so I get to watch this herd of cows outside and it's pretty incredible uh, how obvious it is that, so many of these advantageous features of animals that live animals that size that live out on the landscape, how, how much they've lost evolution wise, you, you know, they just don't really, they don't really have a lot to work with other than size. And for wolves, that's not really enough because they take down animals that size or, or bigger sometimes. But do you think this idea of being able to stop the problem before it starts by sort of guiding the evolution of domestic cattle to be more like their, their, their ancestors. Is that, is this a widespread idea that everyone kind of knows about and is either going in that direction or, or deliberately choosing not to go in that direction? Or is this, is this still waiting to get out? Yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably doing it. I, I don't have as much experience on the cattle side of things, but, uh, my history is uh, pretty strong in agriculture. I, I come from a homesteading family, um, five generations in this country, um, farming, and and I grew up and uh, and and uh, went to high school and was in the FFA and did ag shop and then uh, I worked with cattle uh, in my early years and and really I, I do this work because I because I I really have a big love for agriculture and I I like to see them you know succeed. I mean yeah. And that all, and that's all part of it is taking a look at what what a producer can do to minimize um, depredations um, through a breeding program or selecting the right cattle and um, that sort of thing. So I think it's a it's an open field, and I I think it's super interesting and something that would be great to look at. Is it a hard sell essentially because those ancestral features that would be an advantage to their survival? would not necessarily be desirable in terms of their market value and re- would really require a change of practices just to even, you know, butcher this more aggressive horned cow that you you can't really get close to easily. Yeah, right. It's uh that would be, it is a tough sale. And, uh, and I'm sure that there's a lot of resistance to that. And uh, nobody wants to get into a, uh, a corral with an ornery heifer um, right. with big horns. Uh, me included. Um, so I totally understand that, but I think there's an opportunity to um, work backwards, um, at least at some point where the cows have enough attitude to say, hey, yeah, no, you're not eating my calf or you're not eating me, uh, present some a- attitude. And it's it's probably more about the attitude than it it is the horns. Yeah. Wolves, wolves are a great, a great uh, cost benefit calculator. I mean, they risk risk benefit uh, calculator. They will look at a situation and instantly figure out, is this worth me getting stomped into a, a mud hole uh, to have some beef tonight? And, <laughs> you know, that's that's what you need to do is present present a, a cow that says, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's true. A lot. Of, a lot. There's yeah. like there's several females out in the out in the in the pasture here and only one of them really is is pissed off enough i think to protect herself in that way which is sort of strange 
Yeah, I've, I've tagged a lot of calves that uh, have cows that were pretty protective and it's not a whole lot of fun. And I certainly was weighing the cost benefit of putting the tag in the calf's ear uh, versus being stomped into the ground. So <laughs> that's what you want. Yeah. I can relate to what the wolves are thinking about. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What What's the difference other than size in the way that sheep are handled? Because it seems as though obviously there are more protective measures used Rightfully so with sheep because smaller animal, smaller. but do they still, in, in, smaller, but is there a way that they're protecting their, the lambs as well? Like in terms of there's a lot of them that they're able to drive off predators or is it mostly human, dog, other sorts of non-lethal measures to help protect them? Or is there any focus, focus, is there any truth that they can have sort of that pissed offness as well, or is it not possible with sheep? And that's just sort of the way they are because of their size. Yeah, I think it's it's a size thing, and and really, you know, their outlook on life um, <laughs> is much different, and they are much more vulnerable. Um, so it's almost a hundred percent dogs, um, yeah. herder, um, electronic <laughs> device. Um, we're presenting presenting a, a package to the, what the wolves see as being, you know, this is not worth a uh, lamb meal. Um, right. so. I guess the natural cousins of sheep, you, they, they're just on terrain that probably a wolf would not want to get to. And in this case, that's, that's their natural protection. But that same animal in an open pasture is kind of like a, of an easy meal without dogs and horses and people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I, and I've seen ewes challenge uh, herding dogs um, a little bit. So, I mean, it's not 100% bred out of them, but mm. to a much greater degree than I think cattle, for sure. Do you think there's, you mentioned it before, and I just want to get your take. Do you think this working backwards method, as you just mentioned, it seems to have caught a little bit because the more people that we speak to in this arena yeah, in coexistence, it really seems that it's catching on mm. more so, I think, than probably five to 10 years ago that cattle ranchers, herders, farmers are willing to go back to, I guess, and I am not a farm person by any means. I wasn't grown up in that type of family, but they're going back to the, the harder style of farming or the more natural way of farming. Do you see that that's, people are start, that's starting to gain a little bit momentum? out there in the, in Idaho, in these Western states? Yeah, I, I think so. Overall, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of movement towards a more natural management style um, and a, an easier way of, of maybe um, going the same way as nature instead of trying to go against nature. <laughs> um, it just is almost always easier. Um, and We've kind of seen some things. Um, we're just now getting to the point where we have uh, enough wolf presence on the landscape that we've seen some things like a lesser degree of coyote presence uh, when we have wolves uh, on an allotment. Right. And we saw it um, somewhat for the first time this season. And the herder kind of mentioned that, hey, there's no coyotes uh down here where we were where we're seeing wolves and um and certainly at the main ranch that was also um somewhat the case um i mean it's just one season but you know i think a more natural management style where 
if you can coexist with a wolf pack that is displacing coyotes, which are a much bigger problem, I I would rather um, go into an allotment with three wolf packs than three coyotes, um, just <laughs> because um, they're just such a, a whole different management problem. But um, if you could use the wolf pack that's coexisting, respecting the conflict mitigation tools to displace the coyotes, um, and the coyotes are a much bigger depredation problem, um, that just makes sense to me. And and why not use nature um, to benefit uh, your management? So, yeah, I was going to ask if that uh, if if seeing less coyotes was a major thing for ranchers. If that if that's something they were working on before, um, or if they were successfully coexisting with with coyotes, um, how do, how how is that how does that relationship pan out with ranchers? Because it's something we don't really hear about that often. Yeah, coyotes are a much bigger problem, and they they depredate far far more than probably any other uh, carnivore. Um, generally, um, they're lethally controlled. Um, coyotes uh, habituate to human presence much easier than some of the other large carnivores. Um, so they're they're a much they're a much more difficult uh, uh, predator to to manage. But which I guess is why they they survived the early. Uh, market hunting period and, and wolves did not, they just adapt and, and they get over all this stuff. Yeah. They just, they just habituate to human presence and they just go about their day. Um, oh, that guy's going to shoot at me. Okay. Well, I'll just stay 200 yards away from that guy. So um, yeah, they're, they're super smart and they're super, super good at surviving. So, um, and, and a much bigger, bigger issue when you're talking about depredations than wolves have ever been. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we sometimes get hung up on the wolf issue um, because of our human baggage. And, you know, I actually I, I've heard of domestic dogs also being an issue on ranches in terms of depredation. Is, is that a thing in, in Idaho or is that more? I mean, I've heard of it in, in desert communities more so, but curious if if that's a thing, wild or feral domestic dogs. Yeah, I haven't tracked that, and uh, I'm going to guess it is, and it shows up every year in depredation reports that domestic dog uh, is in. And in the early years of the Wood River Wolf Project, uh, that first year, I think the one of the depredations was a domestic dog. So it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're, so what are some of the main, I guess a lot of the baggage or the myths or the legends or things that are still that people are still hung up on in the areas where you are that need to be dispelled or need to be, again, if we're talking from your perspective, seen with their own eyes, that people still have the hangups about wolves that, that, that have been handed down for generations. Is there, is there something in particular that really sticks with people? One certain myth, one certain connotation that that people are associating with wolves in particular yeah uh, one one thing that really uh, stuck with me over the years and one of the producers said it early on was that once wolves start depredating sheep they you can't stop them that is is something that you you're going to have to lethally control them to to get that depredation to stop and that just hasn't been the case it's not what i've found to be true and um, certainly, you know, I don't want to make it sound like uh, conflict mitigation tools are 100% effective all the time. I mean, there are situations where they just they don't work. And generally, it's uh, a situation where a sheep ban, a large sheep ban, um, 
part of that gets separated and away from the dogs and away from the, the fox lights, uh, maybe on the backside of a ridge or something, and are kind of caught out in the open without any of the human presence uh, tools that, or any or any dogs, and and, just can, and they can still have a depredation. But um, with uh, conscientious uh, husbandry, you know, the herders doing their job, keeping the sheep bunched as best you can, and and the use of dogs and fox lights and um, very minimal complement of conflict mitigation tools, uh, it, you just can make a huge difference and and not have any problems. We've had on two occasions uh, depredations that we deployed the the conflict mitigation tools and went another 80 days without any problems in some of the same allotments with the same wolves um, without issue. So I guess what my experience has been is that you know, if you use the stuff properly and you put it out there, you, you got to have it on the ground. Uh, it just works. So we're talking about sort of misconceptions from that point of view. Are there any are there any misconceptions about this Idaho bill that sort of liberalizes wolf hunting? Um, is there anything that the headlines are perpetuating that maybe is a little more extreme than what is really happening? Or is it as extreme and graphic as it seems? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um it's very extreme and very lopsided. Um, it's I, my money's on the wolves. I, I don't think they can get it done to be honest with you because wolves are, are, are so adaptive and, and, and really shy of human presence and humans in general that, you know, I think that maybe is being overplayed just a little bit that this is not going to be an easy thing to get back to one fifty and, and, my my money is always going to be on the wolves. I think I think they have the upper hand. So, what's the general feeling of the public where you are in Haley, in terms of I guess the the state, if you know, of the state bill or just of wolves in general in your community or the individuals that are around that you're around more so. Yeah, generally it's somewhat favorable. Um, this is a big rec- recreational. Um, uh, tourist type uh, setting, so um, people in general want to see wolves in the wild and and hear a wolf howl. I mean, that's probably top ten uh, greatest things you can do uh, in a wilderness uh, setting is is see a wolf or hear a wolf. Um, but it's somewhat mixed. I mean, there are hunters and and you know um, certainly the sheep producers have a some a somewhat less uh, favorable opinion, but. Um, for the most part, have been willing to go along with uh, coexistence, um, at least in this valley. I mean, it's good to hear. It seems as though that there's, again, I think with people like yourself and Suzanne Asha Stone and, and all these others in the coexistence field, it's only going to continue. I think the numbers and the, and the studies and the testimonies of individuals like you are going to give it more legs so that people that it's going to be hard to argue that it doesn't work. And I think coming from, I, again, the, the hunter yourself as, as a hunter, Brett Ox, who is a hunter, others who are actually go, you know, hiking in the back country who see the elk, who see these measures work. I, I think that's really a, a good gain for, wild ecology and for these ecosystems to really let themselves manage themselves so that we, and you even said it too, to have as much as least the least amount of human interaction as possible to use these other measures, fox lights and things like that. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I I think even, you know, when you look at um, some of the management issues uh, facing um, ranching and agriculture, I mean, elk are probably top of the list for alfalfa depredation. And what better tool could you use than a wolf pack that's eating elk and displacing elk and moving elk? I mean, I would be excited to um, be someplace where um, where there are or there were there's an active wolf pack and elk depredating alfalfa because I mean I I, w- I would be that you know this is this is it this is let's let's see what we can do here let's you know as long as the wolf pack is uh, respecting the conflict mitigation tools I mean holy cow does it get any better than that no it doesn't seem that way why is it so hard for some people to feel that same way well I try to stay and have tried to stay out of the politics and the human baggage associated with large carnivores um, from the very beginning and I look at this stuff as a as a wildlife management issue and and try to try to try to use that um, that bar um, to make decisions and and I just see a huge opportunity when it comes to coyotes and elk um, to use uh, wolf presence uh, to mitigate some of those depredations, which are far more costly than wolf depredations have ever been to um, agriculture. So um, I just think that that's an exciting possibility that um, I wish uh, we could we could get some more wolf presence uh on the landscape so we could uh, maybe try some of that stuff. And, and we saw some of it this season, but I'm afraid with uh, SB 1211 that uh, wolf presence is going to be uh, somewhat diminished. Um, and we're just getting to the point where we're, we're seeing some, seeing some good wolf presence that um, we were able to, to make some determinations that maybe they're moving coyotes and, and elk a little bit. So. That part was a little bit disappointing. I was really looking forward to moving forward with some of that stuff. Yeah, it's incredible to hear that because it's the second or third time I've really heard about it. And I have been reading too about what you were saying about elk is that they do come on to ranches and farms and they're, they're eating the hay and they're eating the meal for the cows. So then the cows aren't gaining the weight and ungulates can be a problem also. I think there's this, as you said, the pendulum swings more towards the predator because the animal, whether it be livestock, lamb, cattle, the the physical animal itself is taken, but others don't understand that if the cattle doesn't make weight or the sheep don't make weight and they're selling it by the pound for a certain market rate, I'm sure that goes into the factor economically for the farmer, for the herder. So it's really this, again, it goes back to as you said, you know, wolves driving away coyotes, also keeping the, the elk herds away as well. So it's this, this system that has to keep running in order for everything to sort of work in conjunction with each other. Yeah, right. It's, uh, you know, we don't, we don't look at elk as being a huge depredator, uh, a, huge, a huge cost to producers, but I mean, the loss in hay and and loss in alfalfa is is huge, and I don't I don't have the I don't remember the exact cost, but it's it's a big number. And so if you if you look at it as a management issue, if I can use wolves to control elk, uh, they're certainly going to be eating elk, so there's less elk. And if they move elk around, um, that's a benefit. Um, I I have never believed the the idea that that elk 
or you're being pushed out of the wilderness into these farm fields um, by wolves. I mean, I just don't buy that because if if the elk are out in the farm fields, well, guess what? Wolves are going to be out there too because they eat out. I mean, it's just that's just the logic. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me to say that you know all the all the elk are hiding in the in the alfalfa um, and the wolves aren't out there um, eating elk. Well, that's just natural. They're they're trying to trying to to exist and and make a living off the landscape. And you know, if a easy easy meal is available, well, they're certainly going to take advantage of that. And um, as as you know, as a sheep producer and 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 coexistence guy, um, it's my job to to make that a, a more costly, uh, yeah, harder for them to uh, to do, and for them to look at that and and say, well, you know, maybe we'll have elk calf tonight instead of sheep. So. No, I, I love it. I love all the work that you're doing, Kurt. This was this was fascinating and and definitely, you know, I, I learned a lot here. And we're gonna get to uh I want you to promote the websites for Lava Lake Lamb and, and obviously for Wood River Wolf Project and, and things of that sort. I, I only have one more question. Stephen may have another after I ask mine. But my question for you is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Well, the first thing I think of is balance. Wolves balance an ecosystem, and we certainly need a more balanced approach to managing large carnivores and wolves in general. So, Stephen, do you have anything else before? Uh, no, sir. I'm good. Tell everybody where they can uh, Lava Lake Lamb, Wood River Wolf Project. Uh, and also, I didn't get to this, and, I, and that's my bad on the apology, but you also have some great photography. I was looking up your some of your photographs, and they are absolutely great stuff. So. Those mm-hmm. three things, please let people know where they can check all that stuff out. Yeah, so I've been very active in the photography part of it for uh, quite a few years because of the coexistence stuff kind of replaced that um, time-wise for me. But uh, you can follow me at Wilderness Trails Project on Instagram uh, or Kurt Holson on Facebook. And then the lavalakelamb.com is the website for Lava Lake Lamb. And then the woodriverwolfproject.org is uh, where you can find the wolf project. That's great. So yeah, so if they follow you, what sort of things can they expect to see on your Facebook, Instagram? Are you are you dropping photos? Uh, are you talking about what's happening with Lava Lake Lamb? Are you pretty much giving out that information pretty regularly? Yeah, so that's pretty much all I post on uh, social media is uh, coexistence-related uh, material, um, what's going on in the field and um, coexistent tools and what we're using and how we're using it. and. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty much all I post. Yeah, real quick before we go, I, I uh, have a few things here I was going to show you, and I, I realize it's a podcast, so the audience won't be able to see it. But you know, this is a fox light. This is a fox light. This is a solar fox light. Solar version of a fox light, and what you get is this part is what you what you buy. Um, so what we did was um, come up with a way to use it in the field. Uh, looks like it's already going off, but uh, so we modified electric fence posts uh, at about two feet to make it easier to deploy in the field and easier for the herder to use. And let's see if it'll. Uh, so that's that's what it does. It's a randomized pattern of red, blue, and white lights that will go off all night, and it's randomized. It's not always the same, and the timing is different. That's the solar fox light, and this is the older style. This is the first style that came out. It's got a big six-volt battery. It's pretty heavy. 
a lot harder to use in the field. And and really, they're designed to go on a green T-post, which is pretty heavy. And if you show up in the field with green T-posts, the herder will look at you like you're crazy. And 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 the green T-posts will be brand new at the end of the season. <laughs> and then the last thing we've been working on uh, this season is the dog collar. And um, this is a, a about, I don't know, 15 ounces of uh, two layers of, le- of leather and Kevlar uh, for protection. And then... Uh, this particular one's a little bit fancy because it has a GPS location um, uh, device, uh, and then it also uh, has a has a blue blinking light. That gets- that's for deterrence, or that's for someone to for some for a human to see the dog. This is a deterrent. Uh, it's uh, like human that. presence uh, force magnifier for the dog. I mean, wolves don't run into too many livestock guardian dogs wearing a blue light, so. Um, it's, it's just something they don't see. So it, it gives them an, uh, an added level of human presence, uh, to help, uh, it's, it's a protective collar, but it's also a kind of a passive, uh, conflict mitigation tool. So, um, you see these quite a distance away. And if, she, if a wolf's looking at a sheep band with four dogs with a blue flashing light, um, that's a pretty good deterrent. So that is weird. And the leather yeah. is just for protecting the dog's neck in the event of a wolf attack. Yeah, it's it's a protective measure and um, really only good against a single wolf. Uh, if you get multiple wolves, um, it, it's not a big protection. And and oftentimes it's also a protection against dog on dog. Uh, a lot of times uh, the big um, livestock guardian dogs will get in it with each other and, and kind of gives them a little protection against that too. And uh, it's really more about the uh, blue LED, the flashing LED, um, you know, being a passive uh, conflict mitigation tool. Um, in the field, so a little bit of both. We had really good luck this year with it, um, a couple couple different times. So, is there is there a way? Yeah, this that was a great demonstration. Is there a way for other herders? Is this is this technology that you guys are producing and selling, or is this something? How are other? How can other other individual farmers, livestock people get this get this technology? Yeah, so it's not really. Um, Anything that we're coming up with, we're just adapting what's uh, commercially available to an easier use for herders and uh, the way that we're using them. Uh, the Fox lights are, are very available on Amazon or almost any 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 outlet, um, and they're really a go-to thing. And then the collar, I'm building myself, and this is the first season we fielded them, and you know I'm not sure where we're going to go with it, but... Um, it's kind of kind of handmade right here at this desk, actually. So, and you are hands on, Kurt. I love it. This is this conversation was awesome. I, I this is again, you're you're one of the one of the rock stars. I think that are again in this in this field, and you are the perfect radical middle person that you know is is joining joining our pack. I think on this podcast. So thank you so much for for sharing information, sharing your stories. And everybody, we're going to post all the all the websites, but please check out Lava Lake Lamb, check out Wood River Wolf Project, check out Kurt on Instagram, Facebook. This is valuable information and these coexistence tools are, are great and they're working. So Kurt, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was an absolute joy to visit with you, fellow. So Yeah, um, thank you very much, Kurt. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Uh, how's to everybody out there? And Steve and I will be with you all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information.